You've seen the headlines, bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Rupert Murdoch has built and partially dismantled an empire that has serious political heft as well as media dominance. We examine how the breakup of his businesses has gone and ask how they're likely to be run when his heirs take over. And a look at a pioneering fitness influencer who flogged his exercise regimen in publications, opened a string of gyms, put his name to supplements, and used technology to get his likeness everywhere more than a century ago. But first... The earthquake that shook Japan's northeastern coast at 2.46 p.m. on March 11, 2011, triggered a tsunami. Waves as high as 40 meters crashed along 500 kilometers of coastline. It killed around 20,000 people and destroyed more than 100,000 homes. The first thing that you realize is you are riding into areas that are largely deserted. You see a field, but then you see the remains of buildings on the field, and you see cars lodged in trees. At the time, Kenneth Kukie, now a senior editor at The Economist, was our Japan correspondent. We stopped. We were just perplexed why someone would have built a house in what looked like open plains until we realized that we weren't actually in a city at all, We were literally in a rice field, and the wave had transported all the debris of the city, four kilometers, five kilometers, up the valley. You saw an image of the like that you hadn't seen since basically, sadly, the the bombings of Hiroshima. And that's actually one of the reasons why 311 left such a big imprint on the Japanese psyche, because An entire generation had grown up on those devastating images of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and here was the modern equivalent of it. For many, the event 10 years ago today is remembered for just one thing, the ensuing crisis at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant. Though the plant withstood the waves, its backup generators were flooded, halting the essential flow of cooling water around its six reactors. Within days, three of them had melted down, spreading radiation across the region and panic around the world. The disaster came to be known simply as 311 for March 11th. Noah Snyder is our Tokyo bureau chief. 
It was seen as a massively significant event in terms of the national psyche. The earthquake literally shifted Japan several meters to the east. And at the time, a lot of commentators spoke of this disaster as a portend of similarly seismic shifts in society, in politics, in energy policy. Politicians sort of painted efforts to rehabilitate Fukushima as an emblem of a broader revival after several decades of economic stagnation and struggles with demographic decline. But the same flaws that handicapped the response to the disaster, lack of coordination amongst ministries, poor communication, bureaucratic inflexibility, these are things that persist. And in, in more ways than not, the status quo really was re-entrenched. And there's still a lot of work that needs to be done simply to clean up. What is it that remains to be done? Well, the nuclear reactors at Fukushima Daiichi plant still are in the process of being decommissioned. It's a process that TEPCO, the utility that owns the plant, has said will take 30 to 40 years, but even that may be optimistic. The most pressing problem at the moment is what to do with water that's been used to cool the spent fuel that's still in the reactors. And the government and TEPCO would like to tip the filtered water little by little into the ocean, which is standard practice at many nuclear plants around the world. But fishermen and farmers fear that this will make people loathed by their wares. And beyond the site of the reactor itself, what is the area around Fukushima like today? Well, I think it's important to remember that there's no one Fukushima. The situation is really a mosaic of divergent fates. In the area closest to the plant, there is a small area that's still uninhabitable. It's known as the difficult-to-return zone, which is really a euphemism for towns that, that will never be returned to. Former residents are allowed to make short visits in protective gear, but not to stay overnight. So I joined Kawata Masumi on one of these brief trips. We got in her van. The places where there are white fences with the green tarps or the sort of temporary yeah. storage yeah. facilities. Uh, and her husband's family had lived for more than 200 years in the same house there. A beautiful old wooden Japanese house on a hillside where they used to grow persimmons and weave silk and brew sake. You have to go through a checkpoint, don some protective gear. Devices, yeah. And they give you an individual dosimeter that essentially tracks the amount of radiation that you've absorbed. This is showing. The house itself is still grand and beautiful in many ways, but it's also a wreck. With the debris and detritus, things that were knocked over in the earthquake, clothes that were left behind, documents that had been rifled through by wild boar and, and monkeys. As we were walking around the grounds of her house, she recalled to me an earlier trip where she had found a monkey in the living room wearing our clothes, as she put it, like the king of the house. But outside the the sort of smaller, difficult-to-return zone, what are things like? It really depends where you are in the prefecture, but largely contamination 
isn't the main problem anymore. The health risks are certainly less acute than what was feared in the disaster's aftermath. Ambient radiation levels in the prefecture now are comparable to other cities in Japan and the world. There are, of course, enduring questions about the long-term health effects. But for most residents, it's safe to live there again. And in terms of the wider devastation in the area, just from the tsunami itself, how has recovery from that been going? Well, it's really a question of how you define recovery. If you look at it in terms of infrastructure and physical rebuilding, which has really been the focus of the government's efforts, a lot has been done and the recovery has been humming along. There's been public works projects, roads, train lines have been reopened. So when you visit the prefecture today, the visible scars are minimal. But behind the physical rebuilding is an ongoing psychic suffering. Rebuilding communities has proved far trickier than repaving roads. And Japan, of course, and rural Japan in particular, had been suffering from depopulation and seeing communities age and hollow out even before the Fukushima disaster really accelerated that process. A lot of residents who left have chosen not to come back even after their towns reopened. And what about Japan's nuclear industry, which obviously took a knock in the immediate aftermath of the disaster? So after the disaster, all of Japan's nuclear plants were essentially mothballed for further safety inspections. There were 54 reactors running at the time of the disaster. Now, only nine of those 54 have been allowed to restart. Many of the plants have been slated for decommissioning. The Japanese government is committed to nuclear energy, in part because they see it as essential to achieving net zero by 2050. But the public remains skeptical of nuclear. In fact, uh, more than half the Japanese public would like to see nuclear energy essentially wound down. And that's a big shift from where things stood before the disaster. So if grand sweeping reform that had been hoped for at the time of the accident hasn't come to pass, what, what do you think the, the real legacy of Fukushima will be for Japan? I'd say one of the most important legacies of Fukushima has been mistrust. In the wake of the disaster, the lack of candor from government officials and TEPCO officials really sapped trust in the authorities. The meltdown itself sapped trust in experts and scientists who had been telling people for decades that nuclear power was fully safe. Trust, as I heard from one interviewee, is not a renewable resource. Once you lose it, that's kind of it. And I think that's the big legacy of 311 that Japan has to grapple with now. Noah, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Pandemic birthdays can be a bit dreary, even for billionaires. One, Rupert Murdoch, turns 90 today. The media mogul's empire has changed since his 80th, when British detectives were investigating News Corporation for phone hacking and bribery. I would just like to say one sentence. This is the most humble day of my life. 
Alongside convictions and the closure of the paper at the heart of the scandal, Mr. Murdoch himself went before a parliamentary inquiry. I think that, frankly, I'm the best person to clean this up. While that scandal has largely been put to rest, he still faces a challenging birthday, and not just because of Zoom drinks. The Murdoch empire has changed really beyond recognition in the past 10 years. Tom Wainwright is The Economist's media editor. You go back to his 80th birthday and he was in real crisis. There was this police investigation in the UK, but actually that forced the companies to change. They were split in two into 21st Century Fox and News Corp, which split the film and TV assets away from the newspapers. And then in 2019, most of those TV and film assets were sold to Disney for $70 billion, which was, most people think, near the top of the market. So he's done really incredibly well for himself in the past 10 years. He's gone from this very sticky situation to one where he's managed to make billionaires of himself and all his children. Well, about those children, there's been plenty of talk and, and even a television show about the, the succession. Who's, who's going to end up in charge of what? Well, the question's been partly answered. It looks like Lachlan Murdoch, his eldest son, is the one who initially at least will be in charge. He's already the chief executive of Fox Corporation and the co-chairman of News Corp. So he's really the one who people expect to take charge. I mean, you speak to different people and you hear different things. Some people say that he seems less interested than his dad in some of the older businesses, particularly the newspapers. They wonder if he might get rid of those to focus more on some of the online investments that he's made in things like a streaming company and a betting company, that kind of thing. But then you speak to other people who say that actually those legacy assets do matter to him and that he has a sense of nostalgia. I mean, the one thing that people seem to agree on is that Lachlan Murdoch isn't someone who is going to be content to see these businesses just get smaller and smaller. If anything, he seems to want to build them back up and be a proper mogul in in the mould of his dad. But what about the rest of of Lachlan's siblings? Well, they're not involved in the day-to-day running of the companies anymore, but they do still have an interest in the Murdoch Family Trust, which has a controlling stake in both of the remaining companies. And when Rupert Murdoch eventually dies, control of that trust will be split four ways between the four eldest siblings. That's Lachlan, his brother James, his sister Elizabeth and his half-sister Prudence. And their views on what should happen, they haven't all made these public, but they do seem to disagree. I mean, James has made pretty public his disapproval of the editorial line that Fox News and some of the newspapers take, for example. And so you can see this turning into quite the wrangle. And how are the businesses as, as they stand now actually doing? Well, they're pretty impressive businesses. They both, though, are in industries which are in sort of gentle decline. Certainly in the case of Fox Corporation, which is a now really a cable TV company, cable TV is something which is, is not doing all that well in the States. I mean, every year the number of people cutting the cord increases and the pandemic has just accelerated that. And Fox has been protected by that to some extent by the fact that it focuses on news and on sport. But that could be changing now. I mean, at sport in particular, you look at some of the streaming services which have ignored news and sports up until now, but they are getting into sports. And what about the news branch of Fox? 
Fox News is by far the most important bit of Fox Corporation. It's where Fox actually made 80% of its profits last year. But Fox News faces problems of a different sort. It's facing a legal challenge from Smartmatic, which is an election software company, which claims that Fox News said in its coverage had been involved in trying to rig the election, which it says was defamatory. Fox News, we should say, says that the case itself is baseless and that it will defend it. But nonetheless, that is a worry for investors in Fox, that it faces this potentially expensive payout. Um, The other problem Fox faces, I think, is that it had this extremely close relationship with Donald Trump during his presidency. And now that that presidency has come to an end, there's a bit of a question of how Fox should position itself. After the election, it refused to endorse Donald Trump's claims that the election had been a, a hoax and that he'd actually won it and so on. And that really infuriated some of his big supporters, and some of them have defected to other channels like Newsmax, which seem willing to be even Trumpier than Fox. And Fox News' ratings year on year are not looking so good. So it faces problems as well. And what about News Corp, the the, the newspapers and publishing end of things? Well, it's a really weird company. I mean, newspapers make up the bulk of the revenue, but actually, if you look at where the profits come from, the single biggest chunk of profits recently has come from some real estate companies that it has, or their sort of online real estate services. And so you have that. And then the newspapers themselves, they're doing okay. I mean, they recently in Australia did this deal with Google, and they seem to be working on one with Facebook, in which those tech companies will pay News Corp and other content providers for their content. And that money will go straight to their bottom line. So that's good news for them. And News Corp is keen to say that they think that this is just the beginning of a much bigger movement in which countries around the world will do deals like this. So they're optimistic about that. What's your view on the future? What what does your crystal ball tell you? It's hard to say, but I think that the thing to keep in mind when you're looking at the Murdoch companies in particular is that these assets that they have, they're they're not just economic assets or business assets. They're also incredibly powerful political assets. Something like Fox News. I mean, you can talk to analysts and they'll look at the bottom line and they'll suggest that bits and pieces should be spun off or they might say the same thing about the newspapers. But these aren't just entities geared towards making money. These are organisations which Rupert Murdoch has used over the years to really, in some cases, set the agenda in countries like the United States and indeed the UK. And the question really for Rupert Murdoch and eventually his children is what do they want to do with these political assets? Money aside, they're very powerful and they need to figure out what on earth they're going to do with them. Tom, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. My hands are in absolute bits. For next, we're going to go for the crucifix. Wrist flexions, I did 50. These online fitness fans aren't attempting the latest workout trend, but rather one that's more than a century old. For beginners, you're going to go for somewhere between 10 to 15 of these. Wrist rotations, I'm at 60. I do about 35, sometimes I do 40. It's a regime of dozens of repetitions using very light weights put together by Eugene Sandow, a Victorian strongman, sex symbol, and arguably the first fitness influencer. Eugene Sandow was a circus strongman who came from Prussia, and he arrived in Britain in 1889 and took part in a competition against the reigning champion at the time. Will Caldwell writes for 1843, The Economist's sister magazine. 
They took on lots of different challenges, which involved wrapping chains around their chest, which they burst just by expanding their chest and lifting men up with their arms. And Sando reigned supreme. Not only was he crowned the strongest man on earth, but he actually managed to become an A-list celebrity and a household name at the time. And he capitalized on this fame to build a, a fitness empire, which no one had really done in that, that way before. How do you mean built up an empire around himself? Sando set up a kind of institute of physical fitness, which was a, a, effectively a gym, and he had a whole franchise of gyms where he promised people that he would improve their chest measurements and bicep size over a period of months. He sold books and pamphlets, which made similar promises. He also kind of used himself for many endorsements of products. So he had lots of branded merchandise. For example, Sando's concentrated embrocation, which was a, a muscle rub, and this health and strength cocoa, which you could argue was an early protein shake. He sold products for women too, corsets, which were meant to help with your figure, and lots of varying exercise devices, which would help you muscle up. So why do you think he broke through? How was he able to become the first fitness influencer? Sando took to marketing very intuitively, but he also rose to prominence at a time when there was this undercurrent of interest in health and fitness in Victorian Britain, which was underpinned by lots of social anxieties that people were unhealthy and men particularly were not strong enough. And Sando broke through as the prominent fitness and strongman guru. And that evolved, you know, when the Boer War was going on and there was a particular anxiety about British soldiers being weak. Sando jumped to the occasion and offered to train the soldiers. So he kind of adjusted his marketing to the time. But the appetite for someone like him was very much there. People were just waiting for the right person to come along. Sando also used the latest advances in technology to promote his work in the same way as fitness celebrities have done throughout the 20th century. What kind of technology are we talking about here? In terms of technology, Sando came to prominence at a time that, that's been described as the graphic revolution when there was lots more opportunities for visual media. And the photograph was a big part of this. And lots of celebrity photographers wanted to photograph Sando and he gave them the opportunity to do so, usually dressed as if he was a Greek statue. And by, by dressed, I mean wearing nothing except for a fig leaf or sometimes adorned in a leopard skin leotard. And these images were fairly erotic and were distributed on, on postcards, which were very popular. And film was just starting to take off. And Thomas Edison, who'd invented the kinetoscope, which was an early motion picture device, he made a series of short films that featured Eugene Sando displaying his body, flexing his muscles and performing a backflip. So a bit self-promoting, um, unafraid of the, the most cutting-edge technology, uh, really connecting with people. This, this is starting to sound a lot like a, a modern-day fitness influencer. Yeah, completely. Sando pioneered a lot of marketing strategies that ended up being used throughout the 20th century by everyone from Arnold Schwarzenegger to Jane Fonda. And what's sort of particularly interesting to look back on this time now is that the period we're living through just as the late Victorians was a period of great social anxiety and people channeled a lot of those anxieties into health and fitness and it's quite strange to think that so much has changed in some ways, yet our anxieties around health are the same. 
Will, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. See you back here tomorrow. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds.